The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. Would you look with me into God's Word, this text that we're going to be just uh, marinating in for these uh, four Advent Sundays and then Christ Sunday, here in Isaiah chapter 9 and verses 1 through 7. This is God's Word. It's inerrant. It's infallible. It is gloriously true. Hear the Word of the Lord. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumults and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God abides forever. By his grace and his mercy, may his word be preached for you. Please be seated. So, this is my 23rd um, Advent season at Briarwood. But who's counting? Uh, the 23rd, I actually said the 22nd in the first service, and my ever-present editor corrected me. That's my wife, in case you don't know, and it's the 23rd. And that means 23 Advent series of sermons, which is a little bit of a challenge um, in terms of how do you approach this glorious subject of the humiliation of Christ through his incarnation, his life leading to his atoning death and the tomb and then his exalt, anticipating the glory of his exaltation and his ascension and his second coming. So how do you do this? How do you, how do you take this uh, year after year? And there has been one text that I have not preached from that I've longed to preach from. And now I get the opportunity to do it beginning this Lord's Day. And that's this messianic prophecy that you find in Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 through 7. Now this is a powerful text. This text either by direct quote, this text either by direct quote or by implication and penetration undergirds all of the gospels, undergirds the New Testament, is made use of is referred to and sometimes directly quoted, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. And that's where we're going to be. It is really a glorious text. And hopefully, hopefully, this is something I have prayed for, uh, I have prayed for diligently. Hopefully, this might, for you and me, reclaim why this season 
the Advent season is marked by the call to joy. Marked by the call to joy. Just look at the festive nature of it. Why is it festive? Why should it be festive? And has it become rather stale? I mean, it's festive because you know it's supposed to be festive? Or is there something burning, fomenting, gloriously, evervescently at work in our hearts that begs to be expressed with joy to the world? The Lord has come. Now, let me go ahead and get ahead of us. Spoiler alert. What we're going to do for the next four Sundays, all the way up to Christ Sunday, is to focus in the text that I just read on the four titles assigned to Christ the Messianic King. This is an interesting prophecy. You know, just a while ago, we, from the Shorter Catechism, affirmed that Christ has come to fulfill three offices, prophet, priest, and king. And this text, while it refers to prophet and priest, actually focuses upon Christ the Messiah as king and his kingdom. That's where it focuses and how he fulfills those offices in his humiliation. Now, what do we mean by that? That Christ has humbled himself by taking upon himself humanity. The humiliation of Christ is not a humiliation of subtraction. It is a humiliation of addition. It's not that he subtracted deity. He laid aside privileges of deity, but we still had a trinity for the 33 years of his ministry here. What it is, is a humiliation of addition. He took upon himself uh, the appearance of a man. He became a man, fully God, fully man, two natures, one person. And he has come to fulfill the office of prophet, priest, and king. And Isaiah 9 brings us with a laser focus upon the messianic king, Jesus Christ, and his kingdom. And that's where it brings our focus and gives us four of his titles. That's what you, kings have titles. I won't give, I won't bore you with all of the kings and all of the titles, but they all have titles. If when, and when they get introduced, they insist that all their titles be read. For, for instance, if you and I were over and there was some royal something in England and Queen Elizabeth, who is the only queen I've ever known in England, uh, the Queen Elizabeth was, uh, and her regal office is introduced, it would take a while to get to the festive um, events because she has 40 titles that are read every time she's introduced. 40 titles. Well, here is the King of Glory. The king of kings and Isaiah, inspired by the spirit of God, brings our focus to four titles. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting father. My goodness. How can a son born be everlasting father? And Prince of Peace. So each Sunday we're going to tackle one of those. But before we get there, let me avert something very dangerous. Whenever an expositional preaching of God's Word, you dig down, dig deep, and you bring a focus, such as we'll do for four Sundays. (laughs) Here is... A focus on Wonderful Counselor. Here is the focus on Mighty God. Here is the focus on Everlasting Father. Here is the focus on Prince of Peace. There is an extraordinary danger of over-developing or under-developing the text. I mean, my goodness, I have to fill in 42 minutes. There is an amazing danger to do that. And the key to not doing that, or at least one of the assets, is you never preach the text without establishing its context. Any text without its context will become a pretext. So this morning, to set up our next four Sundays, 
we need to look at the context of those titles that are given to us. And it is an astonishing, it is an astounding context. Now, here's the way I'd like for us to walk through it, is to first of all, see see what Isaiah wants us to understand about this king and his kingdom. Then, to see how the what is going to be accomplished, and then to see who it is that will accomplish the very promises that are being given to us. So we are being instructed that we have a king who is a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, and the prince of peace. Now, what will this king do? How will he do it? And finally, our takeaway is why is he doing it? But first of all, what? Take your Bibles and go with me back to Isaiah chapter 9. Let's take a look at this first thing. What are the promises of the king and his kingdom? What are they? There's three promises that are given to you in the text. The first one is given to us right here in verse 1. In Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought her into, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now hold it, stop right there. Here's your first promise about this king and his kingdom. The first promise is he is going to displace gloom with glorious joy. He is going to displace gloom. Now, I don't have the time. Speaking of context, if you want to see the depth of the gloom, just go back and read chapter 8. But here, having established that gloom in chapter 8, he then says, but this gloom is going to be displaced with glorious joy. And then he brings out the two tribes, the two, uh, the two tribes who were the furthest north in the land of promise, Naphtali and Zebulun, he, he brings them out, he identifies them, and he says, there was contempt. There was the gloom, the gloom that came, came right through that, and the gloom was penetrating everything. But out of that same place will now come glorious joy. Isaiah is giving us a prophecy of the birth of Christ over 700 years before he is born. Over 700 years. And there is much gloom when he writes in Israel. The halcyon days of David begin to disintegrate in the latter years of Solomon. Then comes the division of the kingdom. The ten northern tribes into rebellion. The two southern tribes, Benjamin and Judah. Then comes kings, except for various ones that God uses. By the way, one that's now actually reigning when Isaiah writes. His name is Hezekiah. That God uses for a period of revival. But by and large, the kings kept taking them deeper into the gloom of rebellion against God. But that's nothing compared to what's about to happen. Upon Isaiah's death, through these northern tribes, specifically Naphtali and Zebulun, specifically in the, in the region of the Galilee, will sweep the hordes of paganism. First will come Assyria, and they will take away into captivity and into slavery. Many and most of the ten tribes and those that are left are subjugated to amalgamation with the Gentiles. And then will come another horde through the Babylonians and they will take in three invasions, they'll take away the southern tribes and they will bring to, they will bring to annihilation Jerusalem. They will destroy the Solomonic temple. And degradation will now come and now not only the northern tribes, but the southern tribes. But then comes another horde 
And that is the Medo-Persian Empire. And then the sweeping paganism of the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great. And it will so invade, particularly the Galilee, that they'll give up on the Hebrew names of their very region and their cities and their villages. Now Decapolis. Now the Greek names and paganism. And paganism will go so deep that when the paganism has come into its depths, that now the demonic will feel at home in that region. And then comes the iron hand of Rome. And Rome comes in domination. And Rome comes to hold fast the people and the nation. But then the Savior is born. Where does he reside? In the Galilee. And the door of paganization to bring the gloom of rebellion and depravity throughout the land now becomes the epicenter of the work of the gospel as this one is raised in Nazareth by the Galilee. Ministers on the villages of the Galilee like Capernaum and Magdala and there he begins to minister. From there he will go to Jerusalem to save us from our sins. Here comes a king who will go right to the place where the gloom had been distributed throughout the land and upon the people. And it is there that he will begin his glorious work to displace gloom by the power of his grace and his mercy. And now would come glorious joy. To the world. The Lord has come. But then he makes another promise. This king and his kingdom not only displaces gloom with glorious joy, but look at the next verse. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them has light shone. Boy, this is going to mean a lot to, to the writer of the gospel of John. And that, of course, is is John, when he says that the true light has come, the true light has come and he shines, but the darkness does not comprehend it, but the light, whenever it comes, always displaces darkness. And now, there comes the king and his kingdom, and he will displace the darkness by his glorious light. He will displace the gloom with great and glorious joy. He will displace the darkness by bringing the light into the darkness. And even though the darkness does not comprehend it, even though the darkness cannot exp- cannot embrace it unless the Lord gives eyes to see and ears to hear, that light has now come and it is unstoppable. Just how great was that darkness? Here's what I want you to think. Not only did you have this sweeping movement of paganism now for hundreds of years, but before Christ comes, you have 400 years of silence. God is silent. No divine revelation, no prophet. No preaching. Boy, how many, how many of us, we just kind of take for granted. Well, we got preachers and we got the Bible and we got all of this. For 400 years, darkness pervaded. I've only been in what it calls deep darkness once. And I know that coming is a, is the eternal condemnation of hell that not only has torment, but outer darkness, literally meaning darkest darkness. And I've only been in that situation one time in my life, and that was when a deacon in the church in Charlotte um, was moving. And I said, oh, well, let me help you move. And so that was back when I was young enough to be able to help people move and pick up their furniture and everything. And so we put it into the U-Haul it, but it kept, we didn't, didn't really do a great job of packing, so it was kind of falling everywhere. So I said, 
don't worry, I'll go in there and I'll just sit, I'll hold this furniture while, because we're only going to go about a half a mile to the new house. I said, I'll hold the furniture. Well, what I didn't know was going to happen is as soon as I got in there and held on to the furniture, as soon as I got in there, they were going to close that door and there was no light in there and it was absolute darkness. And by the time we got there, I had no idea where I was. I absolutely lost all sense of proportionality, re, um, relative, relative, relativity. I had no idea where it was. Darkness distorts. Darkness destroys. But after 400 years of silence, God has finally spoken in his son, the Lord Jesus. But one more promise, a third promise. You have, look at verse, look at verse three. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. This king and this kingdom that comes into this world, this king is coming to a remnant. And even the remnant will have only a remnant that will receive him. He will come to a remnant of covenant people. But he will replace this remnant ultimately with a joyful. Now, please look at, keep hearing this. Joy, it's, it's all permeating all of the text. He will replace the remnant in gloom and in darkness. He will replace the gloom with glorious joy. He replaces the darkness and displaces it with light. And then he will replace the remnant by making the remnant into a multitude, a joyful multitude. Because this this message that's going from the Galilee of the nations, the Galilee of the Gentiles, is going to all of the nations. And a covenant people are going to be secured for this kingdom by this king from every tribe and nation, every strata, every status, every single area. This gospel is going to penetrate and he's going to bring forth a people whose gloom have been displaced and their, and that all of the glorious truth of the gospel has set them free with the light of the gospel and now they are, they now come together as his people, a host too much to be numbered. Hear the echoes to Abraham as the stars in the heaven, as the sands of the sea. This is a joyful multitude that I am gathering from the rising to the setting of the sun to bring them together out of the gloom out of the darkness into the light and they will be a people of great joy that's the people in this kingdom of this king and those are his promises well how will this king accomplish these astonishing Promises. How will he do it? Well, he's going to do it through three. Now, this y'all, will y'all bear with me? Here's where a southerner has a lot of problems. Three fours, not three fours. That three fours tells us how he's going to do it in this prophecy. Take a look at the first one with me. How will he, how will he displace the gloom with glorious joy? How will he displace the darkness with light? How will he take a remnant and make it a joyful multitude? Here's how. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken in the day of Midian. Midian, he will set his people free. This king is an emancipator. This king is the emancipator for all who are oppressed in sin. All of his people, for all of eternity, he saves from the power of sin, you're born again. 
He saves from the penalty of sin. You're justified. He saves from the persuasion of sin. He keeps calling you. He saves you from the He saves you from the possession of sin. He takes you from the kingdom of darkness and death into the kingdom of light and the love of Christ. He breaks not only the power, uh, he breaks, he, he not only removes the penalty of sin, he breaks the power of canceled sin. And when he does this, he then enables us and empowers us to increasingly put to death the practice of sin. This one saves us from the dominion of sin, its rod, its persuasion, its penalty, its shame, its guilt, all of that. He breaks the power of sin. He removes the penalty of sin. He changes you from the position of sin in the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son. And then he, not, and then he enables you to begin to put to death the practice of sin. And then one day when that king comes back, the emancipation will be brought to perfection and he will remove even the presence of sin and even the ability to sin. That's the glorious day that this king has promised to accomplish. The emancipation of those who are oppressed by the dominion of sin. And it will be done, interestingly, isn't it? It will be done as the day of Midian. Okay, I know you're looking at that and saying, what in the world does that mean? The day of Midian. It's not as difficult as you're right now trying to make it. Right now, you're, okay, day of Midian, day of Midian. Can I give you a hint? Don't call it the day of Midian. Call it the day of Gideon. Who defeated the Midianites? The one whom God called. His name was Gideon. How many Midianites did he defeat? 32,000. They even had the iron chariots. They even had the weapons, lethal weapons, and they surrounded them. Now, Gideon was going to go against them with 10,000, but God says, no, that's too many. Tell those that are fearful to go home. And then I'll tell you what, we still got too many. Go over there, and yes, there is a picture floating throughout Briarwood of me drinking from the spring of Gideon. And I would, when I got down, I didn't know how do I do it so I can join Gideon's army. I couldn't figure out the difference between how do you lap up and how do you cup up the water. And then it comes to 300. And then they go into the battle with clay pots and a torch of light. And the cry for the sword of the Lord and Gideon. And the Lord fought the battle. This is that amazing moment, isn't it? In a manger. In a forgotten town of a king. With an appointed Mother and an adopted father, this king will come and will come to the remnant. But this king wins the victory for our very soul to set us free from sin, from death, from hell. And from the grave. And defeats them. In fact that's where he came. He said let me give you another thing that he's going to do. He's not only going to emancipate us from the dominion of sin. But the third thing he says. He is going to give us triumph. Over all. He is going to triumph over all of his enemies. He will defeat sin. Death. Hell. And the grave. 
And then what will he do? Look at with me in that text again. Look at, look at chapter nine and verse three. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. He will win the victory over all of his enemies. This savior who will humble himself to be born, to live a life of righteousness, to be rejected, to go to the cross and there he will set us free from our sin. At the cross, he will redeem his people. He will be placed in a tomb. On the third day, he will rise again, declaring that he has won the victory over sin, over death, over hell, over the grave. He has won the victory, and because he has, now watch, because he has defeated his enemies, when he comes again, he will destroy his enemies, and all of his enemies will be cast into the hell of fire. Sin, Satan, death, the place of the dead, all cast into hell itself. Defeated all of his enemies and cast them into eternal condemnation and they will be no more But wait, wait, there are enemies that will not be cast under God's judgment for eternity, but will be saved for eternity. For God demonstrated his own love toward us. And that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. And instead of being cast under his judgment, the one who took our place and bore our judgment, when he comes again to destroy the defeated enemies, will welcome his elect who were enemies of him, whom he saved from all of their sins for all of eternity, to welcome us into glory. One third, one more four. Well, how? Now just stop, just work your way chronologically through this. Gloom displays, light displacing darkness, remnant turning in to a multitude. How? By emancipating emancipating us from the dominion of sin. How? By defeating all of the enemies of God's glory and majesty and holiness. By defeating them and redeeming his people. Well, how will that happen? That only can happen through a divinely sent warrior king who comes. Now watch this. Who comes for us. Look at that next verse. For unto us. Can you hear the echoes of the song of the angels to the shepherds? For unto us a Savior is born. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name. Well, stop right there. Who's going to do this? A child, male, child, king. That's who's going to do it. A male, child, king is coming not for Miriam, you know, birth announcements, you've received them. Unto Harry and Cindy was born Jennifer. I am all, that's what we say. This doesn't say unto Joseph and Mary, the appointed mother and adopted father. This says unto us. A child has been born. A son has been given. 
and his lordship and governance will stand because it rests upon his shoulders. Now, who is he? Who is he? He is the glorious, wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God. He is the everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Peace. Those are the shoulders that will bear this kingdom. It's sovereign reign that will be forever. It will be upon him, that babe in the manger, who in the manger is upholding the whole world by the word of his power, is the one who will emancipate his people from their sins, is the one who will defeat all of his enemies. And there is, listen to me carefully, There is no coalition. He doesn't need help. This is his work. And only he can do it. And we who work with him and for him because we love him who first loved us. He is not dependent upon us. But he allows us to be empowered and used by him. He allows that. So, why and how does this take place? Well, that brings us very simply to a takeaway. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. So here's what you know. Would you go with me to Isaiah 9 and let's finish by looking at this last part. The government will rest upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. With justice. That's not our justice. That's his justice. That's what he reminds you of. That he saves us. Not at the, not at the cost of his holiness and justice, but by his justice through his grace. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And not our righteousness, but his righteousness that clothes us in justice because he's paid for our sins. He forgives us in, in his righteousness. He clothes us with his justice, having satisfied the holiness of God. He has shut the gates of hell and with his righteousness, he has opened the gates of heaven for his people. So that here is his kingdom that is forever. And this one of the line of David is the one who establishes it. And he upholds it from this time forth and forevermore. This kingdom cannot fail. And this kingdom cannot fail because the king cannot and will not fail. And here is the symbol. Here is the striking of the symbols of this glorious concerto of praise to the king. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now you've got a reason to rejoice this Christmas. It's not just showing up And going through the motions. Or mumbling a hymn. Now you've got something from your heart. He has taken the gloom of my sin away. And brought me to the dawn of redemption. He has brought the light of his word and the gospel. And by his grace I have been redeemed. He dispelled my blindness and my deafness. He gave me eyes to see and ears to hear. And now the light of the gospel has made sense. 
And he has done all of that to bring me into the multitude of the kingdom of God that one day we will join before the throne and to the praise of his glorious grace, every tribe and nation giving praise to him who is the king of glory and worthy is the lamb who takes away the sin of his people and brings us into glory. And this kingdom that he has initiated is not only now, it is forever. The best is yet to come. Not yet has its fullness been given to us. But it is now. And it is increasing. It is increasing. And I know right now some of you are saying, Harry, are you sure it's increasing? Things don't look too good in this country. Aren't we losing impact and influence? Well, that's, a, that's, a, that's another day in another sermon as to why... A distracted church loses its impact when it gets off mission, off message, and off ministry. But that's not what's happening. Very simply, the Messiah King and his Messianic kingdom cannot fail because he cannot fail. And why is that? The zeal of the... By the way, that's an interesting word, zeal. They could have used the word ardor, and they could have used the word... Let me give you another word. They could have used the word passion. During Holy Week, what's another word that we call that? The week of what? Let me ask you a question. Do you think that Jesus, who fulfilled his passion to do the will of the Father, to save his people from their sins, do you believe the one who would not fail in his humiliation can possibly fail in his exaltation? The same zeal of the Lord of hosts to save us from our sins on that cross is the same zeal that assures a kingdom that is forever, that is relentless, that is unstoppable, that will move, will move throughout all the earth. Yes, from a little upper room with frightened disciples. Seeing the risen Savior for the first time. From that place to a mountain where he gives the first assembly of the church their mission and their message and their ministry. And then back to an upper room where now the 11 become 12 and the 12 become 120. And then comes 3,000. And then comes 5,000. And then comes the gospel going north, south, east, west. Follow the trail of the book of Acts as it goes north and west. Watch its work. It's also going south. In fact, the greatest work arguably will be done in North Africa where the great work of the gospel will be felt there in Alexandria and other places but it will also go east it will not only go south and east and north and west in fact within 25 years in Europe they'll be saying these people have turned the world upside down not because they went out to turn the world upside down but because they went out to turn sinners right side up and when sinners get turned right side up whole worlds begin to change On mission, on message, and in ministry. And that's what's happening. That's what needs to happen here. But be encouraged. Our our dear Dr. Pratt will be back with us for a missions conference, if I'm not mistaken. I think I'm right. I know he'll be back in January to teach at our seminary. And I, But I remember the last missions conference. Do you remember some of those things he shared with us? If I misquote him, check me out with him when he gets here. Here's what he reminds us. India and China now have more Christians than there are citizens in the United States of America. Iran, close country, is burgeoning with conversions. Even the UN, and I'm quoting Dr. Pratt again, so blame him if I'm wrong. Even the UN... Back when he was here, he reminded us they had done a study. Do you know what they're predicting? And the UN is not exactly a bastion of evangelical surveys. They have declared that by the year 2025, there will be 200 to 600 million new Christians in Africa. 
I've had the privilege, as you know, to be involved in what's happening in Brazil. His kingdom is unstoppable. His kingdom is relentless. It will not be stopped, and here's the reason why. Not because of the coalitions we put together. Not because of our ingenuity. Not because of any one preacher. Not because of any program. Here's what will happen. It will happen because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It is the zeal, it is his passion, and the one who would not fail to redeem his people will not fail in sending the redeemed with his mission, on, on mission, on message, and in ministry. The church as the embassy of that kingdom, the church is the epicenter of that kingdom. As this work goes forward, and it's not the church that does it, it's Christ that does it through his people as they go throughout the entire world. Now listen, I'm not, I'm not being anti-political here, but I am going to be very pointed here. I am very grateful for Christians' engagement in the public square. I'm very, and I think there is the place in common grace and even redeeming grace to bring the salt and light into the public square. That includes economics, that includes military, that includes politics, that includes the media, that includes but listen, Jesus Christ doesn't need professors, he doesn't need generals, he doesn't need presidents, he doesn't need senators, He doesn't need anything out there. Jesus Christ will accomplish his purposes in his kingdom. And it is his zeal and passion that assures it. And that's where our hope is. That is where our heart is. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, this is the context. This is child this child would y'all give me one more minute that may turn into two just a thought my heart goes to all of you here this size there may be some of you that I don't need to speak in corporate dispelling of gloom and darkness I need to speak to you privately, for unto you a son has been given. That that personal gloom, can I tell you something? This Christmas, it's not going to be solved by a gift from your spouse. I'm all for good gifts to spouses. I'm not trying to get out of anything. Don't put the weight on your children. It's not this. That gloom and that darkness and that dominion of sin is not going to be dispelled. It's not going to be displaced by going shopping on Black Friday. It's not going to be displaced at the art, uh, at the parties where we sing, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas like the one I used to know. But it's the glory of the Christ. And the zeal of the Lord that will accomplish this. It's not the gift you give or the gift that someone gives to you. Although I'm all, I understand why we do that. Folks, I'm not Scrooge, I promise. But I want you to understand. It is the Lord and his passion is our assurance. That we have life evermore and his kingdom is Forever and ever. Its government is upon his shoulders. As I go through the Gospels, I never read of anything but one thing that is placed on his shoulders. And that's the cross. And with that cross upon his shoulders, our Savior rescues us from the gloom and despair of sin, the darkness of idolatry. He breaks the dominion of sin as he defeats all of his and our enemies. And this one, who is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace.
will send his kingdom for his people from the setting to the rising of the sun. And the praise of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Because the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. And can do this for you personally. Right now. If you've never come to him, don't let this day pass. Come to him. I love the rhythms of the Christian life. I love the opening hymn of First Advent every year. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. I anticipate it. But what I want more than anything is for you to have joy. Because the Lord who has come, you have come to him. Lord and Savior. If you want to pray with someone, there are some folks right up here afterwards that would love to take some moments to pray with you. Father, thank you for these moments we could be together in your word. Thank you for the privilege to begin our wonderful uh, privilege to dig deep into this glorious prophecy. Guide us and direct us. Thank you, O God, for our great King. Unto us, the child King was born, who is the wonderful Counselor, mighty God, and everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. So now we lift up praise to Him, And we invite all to come to him. And we consecrate ourselves. And thank you for this advantageous season to do this. We consecrate ourselves in joy to worship him, to bring him to others, and to bring others to him. That the Lord who has come might become their joy as they, like us, come to him. In Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reeder, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.